to John in chapter 17, please. John chapter 17. I began with this chapter last Sunday. Uh, going to read the whole chapter again this week. I won't do this every week. Some were thinking I was probably going to get through this in a week, but it won't take. It'll take me a few months easily, I suppose. But um, I won't read the whole chapter each time. But I want to do it for a while so that it kind of gets in you the flow of it, the cadence of it, the content of it. John 17 and verse 1, hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, so, have, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, and that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made them I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them 
and I in them. I suppose it should always be that when we come to the Scripture, we should feel as if we should take off our shoes uh, because we're standing upon holy ground. Do you remember the occasion in the life of Moses when he saw that bush that was burning? He was in the very presence of God. And you know that the instruction given to him was to take off his shoes because he was in was walking, treading, standing upon holy ground. And that probably should be true always for us as we come to the Scripture. But I must confess that when I read this passage, there's a sense of being in the very presence of God uh, that for me at least, and again, this isn't the way it necessarily should be, but for me at least, I get a sense of the holiness and the very presence of God and that we're indeed standing upon holy ground. It's as if, for me, that we're looking through a door that has just opened a crack. And we shouldn't really be looking, but we have opportunity to, in fact, invitation to, because here we see the very Son of God at the moment of deepest crisis perhaps coming as He goes to the cross to experience, really, hell the forsakenness of His Father, not for sins He committed, but for sins we committed. He's about to go, and thus He prays. No surprise, as we know Jesus, that He prays, for He was a man who was perfect. Certainly, He was perfect in His divine nature, but perfect in His human nature. But even in the sense of His human nature, perfection, knowing His utter dependence upon God and thus shows us how a man should live which is completely dependent upon God. And thus he was completely dependent upon the Word of God. He was completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. He was completely dependent upon his Father and thus he prayed and he prayed often. No one seems to have prayed more than Jesus. And so in this moment of crisis it shouldn't surprise us that he prays and he pours out his heart to God and he prays intimately for himself, but really for his Father's glory, for his disciples who are standing by listening, indeed even for us who will come along later. And thus this very intimate moment, uh, this very intimate prayer of Jesus. And notice what we hear last Sunday. We noticed that Jesus knew that the hour had come, a plan had been set, and he had been waiting and waiting and, and in a sense biding his time and living this out, knowing for years that his hour hadn't come, but now he knows that his hour had come. In fact, in John chapter 12, he noted that the hour had come, the time had come for the Son to be glorified and the Father glorified through him. And he said his soul was troubled, but he wouldn't feign from this moment. He would continue on because he knew that he had come for this very time. He had come to die. He had come to take on the sin of sinners. He had come even, as he said, now the hour has come, Father, glorify your Son that is reveal Him, show Him to be who He is. Bring back the splendor that Jesus said that I once had before you. Notice in verse 4, uh, or verse 5, He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so, even then, we get a peace as the Father is sharing with His Son in this intimate moment uh, that, 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 that something is eternal about Him, that He's the very eternal One, that, that He had glory um, even before the world existed. And we remember how John opened his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Without Him, nothing that has been made 
was made. The very creator of all things. This very word of God. And remember how Paul puts it in Philippians. That he being in the form of God did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now he didn't empty himself of his deity, but what he emptied himself was the glory. And now he's saying, restore to me that glory. Oh, during the course of his life, people saw glimpses of his glory. When he turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, the disciples went, whoa, we see something here. Throughout the course of his life, they saw the authority of his teaching. Nobody teaches like this. They saw his miraculous works. Nobody can do these works. They heard him forgive sins. They saw him raise the dead. They saw glimpses of his glory. And even on that Mount of Transfiguration, remember Peter, James, and John goes with Jesus in this mountain. And they look upon him and they see him transfigured. They see the glorified Christ for that moment. But now, it's for all the world to see. Glorify your Son. Show people who I am, the Savior of sinners, the Lord of glory. And so through His crucifixion, and through the resurrection, and through the ascension, and by way of His rule and His reign and His ultimate return, the Son would be glorified. He would be shown, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that He's been, he's been called and given the name both Lord and Christ. And as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, He's been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's about to be glorified. And then he says, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' ultimate intention, his ultimate desire is for his Father to be known, is the splendor and the majesty, the glory of his Father to be seen. And he knows that it's going to be seen by way of his work, by way of what Jesus does. And so he says, glorify me, show me, show, show the world who I am, so that you can be glorified, so that they can see that you're just. That even in the cross, that they'll see that sin is significant and that you, Father, are holy and just and righteous and can't simply push it aside. It must be dealt with. Penalty must be paid. Justice must be done. And so in Jesus it's done. And because in Jesus that justice comes for those who will believe, then we see the very love of God because it's, it's not this justice, this wrath of God, this punishment poured out on sinners who deserve it, but upon His one and only Son. And then we see the power of God is revealed through the work of Christ because in His death, He defeats sin and death. In His death, He brings life and defeats the evil one, breaks the bondage of sin so that people can come and believe. And so we see the very power of God and we see the wisdom of God in that as well because who else could have come up with such a plan and executed it, made it work other than God. And so Jesus prays, the hour has come, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Now verse 2 I want to take up today. And this is one of those verses, one of those sentences in Scripture that we all need to just relax and listen. This is something we wouldn't know if we hadn't heard it from the Son. This is, this is something that really just, for me, makes me just to stop and realize the mystery of our salvation and the greatness of God and the real depth of His grace towards us. Notice, 
He says this, Jesus says. Verse 2, since. In other words, here's the reason. You know, God, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Here's how that all is going to happen. Here's the foundation, the ground of all that. He says, since you have given Him authority over all flesh. So the Father glorifies the Son by having given Him authority over all flesh, that is, over all people. So the Son is the one with the authority. It reminds us very much of Psalm number 2, where the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the nations rage in a very real sense against God. Verse 4. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The, Lord's hold, the Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. So you see, everything belongs to Jesus. The very ends of the earth, the nations of the earth. The Father says, ask of me and, and I'll make them your possession, your inheritance, your heritage. Jesus, Jesus has it all. Uh, Paul can write in Ephesians in chapter 1 in a great passage, but verse 9, picking a mid-sentence, says, making known to us that His God is, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, everything, the focal point of everything in history is Jesus and so now, the Father will glorify Him by showing that to be true. And He says, I've given you authority over everything, over all flesh, over all people. Now, the purpose for which He has received that, that glory is for this purpose. Jesus says, since you've given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So the Son is going to glorify the Father by making certain that all the ones the Father has given to the Son will have eternal life. Do you see that here? Sure, I'm not making this up. Okay? This is way beyond me. This is way beyond anything I can even make up. All right? Get the picture here. This very intimate setting. Jesus is saying to his Father, Glorify the Son. The Son may glorify you since, here's the ground of it, here's the reason I can ask this, because you've given me authority over all flesh for a purpose. I have authority, I have all authority over all people for this purpose, so that I can make certain, so that I can give eternal life 
all of those out of all people that you have given to me. So you get the sense that as Jesus is going to the cross, He has a purpose and intent to fulfill the purpose and intent for which the Father has sent Him. And that purpose is to save a group of people whom Jesus has in His mind. His intention is to give eternal life to all those the Father had given to Him. Out of all people, He says, I want you to give eternal life. Make sure that these particular ones have eternal life. And this is echoed throughout this whole prayer. Notice verse 6. Jesus said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Now, at that point in time, of course, the reference is to these disciples. These are ones that clearly the Father had given him. You remember that the night before Jesus chose his twelve, he prayed all night. Isn't it always fascinating, the ones he chose? I mean, it clearly wasn't random. Jesus isn't random. Clearly, he had particular ones in mind. One who would betray him. One who would deny him. Ten more who would just give him fits. But twelve particular ones. He didn't just simply go in the street corner and say at that moment, anybody who wants to follow me, come along. He had particular ones in mind. The Father had given him those particular ones. Now, as we explore the lives of those particular ones, we can see variations among them and so forth. But really, for the life of us, we can't really figure out why any of those, rather than any of the others, they seem to be relatively representative. But, but why those twelve? We simply don't know. Other than it pleased the Father. Other than that was His plan. And so that was part of it all. And in the midst of this, we're caught up in the whole Bible, realizing that it is about God, it is about His plan, all of that being mysterious to us, all of that being beyond us. But yet we see it. He's the one who created it. He's the one who ordained the fall out of any sin. He's the one who made a promise that one would come uh, out of the seed of the woman, the crest head of the serpent. We see all of this being of God. And we see God choosing Abraham, who becomes Abraham. Again, another surprising passage in the Bible. Why this guy? We don't know. We read in the book of Joshua that this guy, Abraham, was a, was a man whose, whose, whose family were pagan worshippers, moon worshippers, sun worshippers. So we don't get a sense in any way, shape, or form that, that he was more righteous than anyone else. But, but God chooses him and he gives covenant promises, that is, promises of God's relationship with the people. Covenant promises. And then he brings covenant prophets who interpret all of that and who bring more specific promises. And then the Bible says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. That little expression, fullness, means, frankly, pregnant. It wasn't only Mary that was pregnant. It was time was ready for, for this one to enter in. And then as we read through the Gospel of John, Jesus knew the hour that was going to come. You get the, you get the sense that, 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 that God knows what's going on, that He's ordained what's happening, that this is His plan. And we see that even more deeply now to know that that goes all the way into the specifics of the people to whom Christ would die in the specific sense 
of achieving, of earning their salvation. We see that in verse 2. We see it again in verse in verse 6. Verse 9, Jesus puts it like this. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see this subset. And then again in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, that they there, are all those who have come to faith through the testimony of the apostles. That, therefore, includes us. So Jesus isn't just praying for his disciples who were with him presently at that moment, but all those who would come later. Verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This seems to be consistent also, not just with the history of redemption that I rehearsed a moment ago, but also with the specifics of how Jesus speaks. For instance, in John chapter 6 and verse 35, we read this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on that day. See, Jesus comes with a purpose to give eternal life as he's praying to his Father, to give eternal life to those the Father had given him. And the Father says that, 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 that he's going to draw to himself these people. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. This could, it will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Because these are the ones the Father has given. This is my inheritance, Jesus says. These are my very ones. Um, he says, I don't come to do my own will, but the one who sent me, and this is his will, that I, should, I won't lose any of these of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, for lack of a better term, the conspiracy here. You see the, the, how the Father and Son are together on this. There, there's no conflict between the two. Uh, the Father says, I've given you this people. Jesus says, I will die for them, and I will give them eternal life. That will be a done deal. So as he goes to the cross, Jesus says, this is my pledge. Please help me. Please bring this about. Glorify the Son that I may glorify you. And the reason I'm praying this is because you've given me authority over all people for this particular purpose, that I would give eternal life, bring eternal life to all those you have given me. And this resonates with, with everything we've read so far about the Father and the Son, the Father drawing, the Son dying for, the Father drawing, the Son raising them up, the Father drawing people, coming to Jesus, not casting them out. And you get this sense of, of this work with the Father and the Son, consistent with these mysterious but significant verses, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us all in all wisdom and insight. And so we see that. And then the mystery of this expression in Revelation in chapter 17 and verse 8. Vision of John. He sees this beast. And he says, The beast that you saw was and is not. It is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and was not and is to come. John sees this book of life that was written in before the foundations of the world. This very book of life that contains the names of those, it appears, whom the Father had given to the Son. Those who will come to the Son. Those the Son will give eternal life to. Those who will be raised up on the last day not in that book of life, then none of that would be true. And here we find Jesus praying all of this. We see an accomplishment of, of Jesus uh, for these very ones, even, even as He prays, for instance. He says, verse 4, I've, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So there's this sense in the midst of this prayer, Jesus saying, Father, I've done it. You've called me to come and I've done it. I'm going to the cross. I've done it. I've I've accomplished this work. Uh, Verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to the people you've given me. That was his his purpose to come and manifest the very name of God, the very name of the Father to this group of people. He says, I've done that. Verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me. He says, I've accomplished it. Verse, Verse 14, Jesus puts it like this. I've given them your word. Uh, verse uh, 20, he says, I don't ask this uh, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Uh, so for more, and then verse 26, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue uh, to make it known. We have this sense of accomplishment, just of Jesus, just such this assurance uh, as well. These very ones the Father had given to the Son that the Son will raise up because the Father will draw them are known throughout the Scripture as God's sheep. John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. There's this group of people known as the sheep. Verse 14. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You get a sense that Jesus could be praying, Father, glorify the Son, so that the Father may glorify you, since you have given authority over all people to lay His life down for these people who are His sheep. I lay my life down for these sheep. Uh, Who are these sheep? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. 
but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. Now, this is making you shiver. It should. There's something here that's deeper than we could ever know. But you do not believe me because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one who is able to, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what can we take from this? Again, we realize this deep and profound plan of God. Secondly, we realize that just because some do not believe does not mean that Jesus has failed. He will not fail. He's come to do precisely what the Father had asked Him to do. To glorify the Father. To glorify the Father by having authority over all people and giving eternal life to all those the Father had given Him. That will take place. Just because some do not believe does not mean that Jesus has failed. He will have succeeded perfectly by all those, because of all those, in all those, and through all those who do believe. That was the intent for which He came. That's been the point of all of this. God is sovereign over all things even mysteriously, in ways that we don't understand because we feel free, make decisions, are human beings, responsible, all of that. It's somehow we know the stillness of every moment that God is sovereign over all things. That He's bigger than we are. And that something's happening here in the midst of all this to the praise of His glory that transcends us. God is at work. Now this raises tons of questions, I know, and I'm not going to answer them. Because Jesus doesn't see fit in the, in the midst of this passage to answer all the questions that may be coming in your mind. What about all the whoever so will passages? Trust me, this isn't inconsistent with any of that. And you can read about that to your heart's content. And you may say, what about all those who, who want to come who aren't part of this group? Trust me, they won't want to come. Well, what about all those who don't want to come uh, who are part of this group? Trust me, they will want to come. Does that mean that people don't have to repent and believe to be saved? No, it means that they will repent and believe because this is who they are. It's who God has made them to be. He will call them. They will respond. And you can ask the question, what about me? What, what, about, well, what does this mean about all of us? It seems that this means that everybody, therefore, is simply under the mercy of God. Yes. That doesn't it? Under whose mercy would you rather they be? What would, you, would, you, would it be more content to know that you are children and those you love, that it's all up to them, that God has no part to play in their coming? 
or up to you in your own life? Wouldn't you rather simply defer and say, all right, I can see that it is God's deal. I'll trust Him in the mystery of all this. I'll trust Him and I'm under His mercy utterly and completely. Who would know best? Who's most trustworthy in this? What gives me more security as I pray for the salvation of those I love? Does it give me security that that they have it within them in order to follow Christ? No, because if they did, I wouldn't be praying for them at the moment. I'm asking God to help them. So to whom do I plead? To them, to Him. Yes. But who do I trust? Them or Him? Him. It's a great verse, one upon which we ought to live perhaps more than we do. Deuteronomy 29.29 Moses writes, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. It tells us that there are things which are secret to Him. And I don't think he's keeping them because he doesn't want us to know because if we knew, then we'd be like him. (laughs) God doesn't have to play those kinds of games. They're secret because even if he told us, and he may have told us, we wouldn't get it. Because we're not God. I hope that's no big shock to you. It shocks me from time to time. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, God reveals what He reveals so that we can follow after Him. He reveals what He reveals so that we can follow after Him. So the question is, knowing this, how does it enable us to follow after Him? Because, again, just just grab a hold of the guts of this. Let the questions lie for a moment. The guts of this seems to be this. That as Jesus was going to the cross, he had all believers in mind. If you're a believer in Christ, what this means is that he was going to the cross most purposefully for you. Not only that, it means that before Jesus came to the earth, There was a conversation, it appears, about you between him and his Father. Now, they'd have to bring the Holy Spirit on this, too. This wasn't like two against one. Because the Spirit would eventually come and need to know who it is that the Son had achieved eternal life for and who it is that the Father had chosen. So, he would need to be in on this as well. So, it's a whole God thing. But even before the foundations of the earth... You, all believers, are on the mind of God. I don't have a category in my brain for that. But He lets us know that. Why? So that our faith would be increased. Why? So that we might worship Him even more. We can let all the questions lie. And we can hold our attention here. Think about what that means for you. And you say, well, well, how do I know that I'm one of these that the Father gave to the Son, that the Father would, the Son would make sure would have eternal life, that the Father would draw, that the Son would raise up? How do I know that I'm one of those? And, of course, the question boils down to what do you think about Jesus? 
Do you hear his voice? How does he call? He calls in the midst of the gospel. He calls in the, in the midst of saying, God is holy. He's created you in his image to follow after him, to show his glory, to depend upon him. And you say, all right. That makes sense. I, 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 I could see that. And there's even a desire in me perhaps to, to go that way, but I haven't. What do I do? Well, then comes Jesus. Here's one who comes to be for you, that one who lived that life. Do you trust him? Here's the very one who's come to take upon himself your penalty for sin, the justice of God. We depend upon him. We trust him. We follow him. You say yes. Yeah. And you're one of those. If you say no and you're breathing, the verdict's still out. Right? Don't know when it may dawn on you, may it may knock you over. We don't know that. But that's how one knows is this response to the gospel. And thus we see it right before us. We see it before us in this table uh, that we call the Lord's Supper. We call it a sacrament because we like that word. It sounds really holy, doesn't it? Sacrament. It means sacred. And we can say in a very real sense that all things under God, all things committed to Him are sacred. And yet we know that God has set some things apart so that His presence can be known among us. We refer to the sacred Scripture. There's something different, isn't there, between the Bible and all the other books on our shelves. Even if the other books on our shelves are about the Bible, we know that this one is different. It's alive. And we sense the very presence of God in and through it as, as, as we don't worship it, but we read it and we sense the very presence of God. Praying is a sacred act. Talking to each other is sacred as well. But, but praying, there's something about that, that God sets that time apart, those moments apart, when we're conscious of being in His presence and conscious of raising our hearts and thoughts and souls to Him. And, and there's something sacred about this. There's something sacred about this, that it sets apart common stuff that we eat and smell and take every day, but yet it says now in this we recognize the very presence of Jesus, the very gospel, the truth. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread after he had given thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you can picture that moment, Jesus anticipating what was to come, yet knowing that that moment, and in some moments hence, he would pray about us. Father, Glorify 
your Son so that your Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh so that He may give eternal life to Bill, to Mike and to Barbara, to Connie, to Robert, to Dan. Think about that. At that moment, He had you in His mind. How more secure could we be? How more secure could we be? And then when He comes and calls to follow, we follow. Sure, why wouldn't we? Now, there are times in the life of a believer that we have doubts about that. Communion can be a crisis for people. Because there's this thing that says, well, if I have any doubts at all, I, I shouldn't come. Let me read you something that was written hundreds of years ago. This isn't the Bible. But it's something that tried to be true to it. It's called the Westminster Confession. It's out of what we call the Larger Catechism, which was part of the study guide to the main confession. The Larger Catechism, meaning that it was larger than the Shorter Catechism. But it was really for the adults. The Shorter Catechism was for the children. We never read the Larger Catechism anymore, which tells us how much we've evolved. Question 172. Should those who have doubts about their being in Christ about whether they're ready to take communion, come to the Lord's Supper anyway. So that's, that was a real issue then. It's a real issue now. What about doubts? Well, if I don't feel ready to come, should I come? This is sacred. This is holy. Jesus is here. I mean, the bread and the juice is still bread and juice. We don't believe in what's called transubstantiation that actually changed into the body and blood of Christ. But we believe in the real presence of Jesus, not bodily, but spiritually. That here He is, and He's always with us. But there's something about this moment that Jesus has given to us that sets it apart from every other moment. And so, we have a sense, and it's inexplicable in some ways, that He's here. And so, you think, should I come? Here's the answer these old dead guys gave. Those who have doubts about their position in Christ or about their readiness to take communion may nonetheless have a valid interest in Christ, even though they are not yet assured of being in Him. What they meant by that is, just because you don't feel this assurance doesn't mean you don't have it. Sometimes we simply don't. It could be because of sin in our lives and we wonder, how could God accept me? And then we need to let the Gospel wash over that. He said, in God's, they said, in God's view, if such people are aware of and grieved by their lack of assurance, saying, I really want it. I really want to know that I belong to Christ. That they sincerely want to be found in Christ and really want to get away from sinning. And since, and then parenthetically they write, since promises are involved, involved in the sacrament and has been established to aid even weak and doubting Christians. And if people in that condition are truly sorry for their lack of faith, and desire to resolve their doubts, they may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper so that their faith may be further strengthened. This is a strengthening sacrament. 
it could be called, I like to call it in my own thinking at times, a sacrament of assurance. A sacrament of coming and saying, yes, here's my heart, yes. I desire to belong to Jesus, yes. I desire to be done with sinning, yes. I desire to be part of this of a community of faith, identified with believers throughout all the ages, yes. I want to be about the work of the kingdom of God, yes. I believe that Jesus has triumphed, yes. I believe that Jesus will continue and will ultimately triumph over sin and death. And in my coming here to expect to meet Jesus. Not that he just exists here, but, but he gave us this and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. I'm, I'm going to be around this spiritually. So whether in some churches they pass it all around or whether you come forward as here, whether you eat it separately or take it all together, you believe the very presence of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, pray for me and for us that Jesus, you would set apart this bread and juice in such a way that we may meet you here. It is utterly astounding to me, God, that you would be so loving, gracious, purposeful, that even as Jesus went to the cross, he would have sinners like me in mind. Knowing that, may I, may we take a great sense of assurance that as believers, as your sheep, that we belong to you and thus can, will, must follow you. Enable us to embrace what Jesus knew, what Jesus prayed, what Jesus desired. Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, so that you may give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. Take this bread, take this juice, Father, and use it in such a way that we would know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. Increase, strengthen our faith to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners in God's sight without hope except in God's sovereign mercy. We believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel. Savior of sinners, and who desire to live as one who follows after Christ. That's true for you. I invite you in the name of Christ to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These two down this aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it, and stand amazed. Please come. Pray with me, Father, as we stand on holy ground and 
have opportunity to peer into your very heart in ways we could never even imagine. I pray that you would enable us to not only know your presence, but to have a great and deep sense of assurance that we belong to you because of what you had planned, what Christ has achieved, our very propitiation of sins. That is, he paid for them. You are satisfied and your love expressed through him to us in that. Father, may we receive that and and walk in it. Father, I pray for those who are in difficulty. Um, Pray for Delbert Earhart and his family as we laid his wife June to rest this week. Be with them, Father, for Teresa Berry and her family and Barbara Dravis. We pray for them on the passing of their mom, uh, Elaine, just this weekend. Grant them peace and sense of your presence. Father, for others who are finding themselves under it, if you will, I pray that they would cast all their cares upon you, that you would enable them to to depend upon you, not just for the moment, but Father, that this would be for life. That they would realize that the momentary difficulty they're facing presently is just a revelation of our human weakness and our need for you. And so I pray, Father, that each would cast cares upon you this day and always. Please meet us in our particular moment of need that we may know that you care, that we may know that you're here, that we may know that all this is true in our Lord Jesus. Father, for those who find themselves uh, with a calling to do ministry in a way that Set them apart from others, I pray. Pray for Jeff and Rebecca Burgess with Campus Crusade that you would be with them, help them in their ministry on campus. For those who minister uh, with Bert, Birthright of Lawrence, Father, that you would grant them grace, that they would show the love of Christ, God, your great heart for life, even perhaps especially for the unborn. And so, Father, you would grant them grace in that. For all of us, Father, enable us to walk with you and this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The response today to the benediction is for us to sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing His will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight. All through Jesus Christ, our Lord, together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.